Welcome to this week's episode of Currently, the podcast that brings you the week's current events in finance, business, and technology with insight from the experts. I'm Grant Stoddard. My co-host is Ryan Pallotta, and today we're talking with Alex Beinfield of Blue Duck Capital Partners. In our chat with Alex, we talk about a couple of tech companies that have been on everyone's lips this week. The first is Twitter. Alex shares his thoughts on whether Elon's bid really will be his best or his last, fans out some of Musk's other available strategies, and talks about the prospect of the platform becoming a $100 billion company. Then we talk about Netflix, which on Tuesday announced that it lost 200,000 subscribers in the last quarter and predicts it will lose 2 million more in the next one. Alex was short on Netflix, but covered most of his position ahead of the announcement. He jokingly calls himself the idiot who covered his shorts, but his reasoning for doing so seems pretty sound, as you'll see. So let's get into what's happening out there with Alex Beinfield. Alex, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Currently. I wanted to really get your thoughts on some current events news. Obviously, you know, one of the biggest things in the news that we can't stop hearing about is what's going on with Twitter and Elon Musk with his attempted takeover. I know you've been long Twitter for a long time. And first off, I wanted to ask you, Elon wants to take the company private. How do you feel about that? And my concern with that is that it prevents a lot of people who are current shareholders in it in experiencing any of the amazing upside that he does see in it in the future. So if you're currently a shareholder in this company, if he does take it private, aside from the increase to the $53 that he's offering you, you're not going to see any potential upside in this massive growth that he's saying that he can deliver on it. Yeah, I mean, and that was my sort of immediate reaction to when I saw the uh, the offer price. You know, I think um, you know fifty four, which is forty three billion market cap, not a whole lot more than where DoorDash was trading on that same day. Um, you know, in the high thirty billions, and they they don't do the same thing. But if you think about the relative sort of impact on the world and and our lives and politics and and everything, I mean, you, you they're really not comparable. So I, I like to kind of sanity check market caps sometimes, and um, it just makes no sense, right? I mean, Twitter shouldn't be sub fifty billion, right? And yet Elon is still is that's what he's offering. He's offering to take it private at forty three. The flip side, though, is that shareholders need to consider whether they think the current management team can really unlock value and unlock the potential of the platform. I would argue that they can't. So I've lost faith in this management team, or I had lost faith in them for quite some time when part of my bull thesis on it, maybe six months ago, prior to Jack leaving, was that Jack would leave and that whoever they put in to replace him would be an upgrade because it would be an easy upgrade. I don't think Jack was even that involved with the company. He obviously was CEO of two different, you know, two different mega cap companies, which is hard in and of itself. They put in a guy that I think no one had ever really heard of. He doesn't have a ton of experience. He's never been a CEO before. Um, he's a technical guy. So I think that's great on one hand, but it leaves potentially a lot to be desired in other areas of the company, which is where I think they also need a lot of improvements such as corporate culture. And it was just very disappointing, right? So that kind of kicked a, a, a leg out of the stool of my bull thesis right there, just in and of itself. The fact that Jack leaving the company, which I knew would be, or I thought would be a plus 20% type day when that got announced and I felt like it was inevitable. It happened. The stock ripped briefly. And then we all learned who was coming in to take his seat. And uh, 
I think Parag is, you know, he, he, a lot of what he's, um, you know, his, his skill set, I think is a little bit more intangible guys in my seat because he is, does have a technical background. Uh, and it can be hard to sort of see how his impact has benefited the company over time. He's been there a number of years, I think over a decade. Nevertheless, you know, you, you do kind of wonder, is this the right guy for this role? I mean, it's a very important role. Uh, the company needs real leadership. I think that they need change. I think they need corporate change in terms of the culture. And I'm not sure he's the right guy for that. Uh, the other thing that immediately concerned me was just looking back at uh, some of his, uh, you know, some of his thoughts on free speech and stuff like that, which I think is what has obviously attracted Elon. And, uh, you know, we know that Elon is a guy who is passionate about free speech and he, he believes that the platform can only really unlock its true potential if, in fact, free speech is totally embraced on an absolute basis with really no exceptions. So, you know, I'm not sure Parag thinks that way. Um, I think that Jack thought that way uh, as sort of a founding principle, but did kind of move away from that a little bit. And Elon, you know, obviously he wants to restore that, that sort of principle. With all that said, you know, I think Elon, is he a guy that, uh, is it an optimal outcome for shareholders to accept an offer of $43 billion, uh, which is arguably significantly less than their true potential, which I think is actually, it could be about a $100 billion company. I think you just have to weigh that relative to the alternative, which is that you've got this management team that has not demonstrated any real ability yet, right? And I think has culturally gotten the company off path in a way that is a little bit concerning. So ideally, what I would like to see happen is I'd like to see um, Elon tender for the whole company at a higher price. So uh, mid 60s, I would feel you know adequ adequately compensated with that type of premium. And so we'll see. I mean, he said it's his first and or his uh, final offer, but that that's typically a negotiating tactic. And uh, I'd, I'd be surprised if that is in fact his final offer. And there are a few reasons for that, which I can get into if you want. Yeah, I'd love to hear those. But my first question, though, isn't there a way that we could potentially have both where we get Elon and we get his, he's obviously an incredible product creator, you know, one of the best entrepreneurs we've ever seen. And we can keep the company maybe public where we continue to see upside where the vision, where he wants to take it. Why does it need to be a private company for him to unlock the potential that he sees in it? Can we, you know, like we have, we've seen with other hostile takeovers where an activist investor comes in, like a Carl Icahn comes in, takes over a company, wants to basically clean out the board, clean out the executives and make it a better company. And we see them thrive. Couldn't that happen here where Elon comes in, rejuvenates the company and keeps it public so that we have this democracy of shareholders that can benefit in the upside? Yeah, that could happen. And I think that's kind of another way to win, right? So whenever you're involved in a, in a situation like this as an investor, you want to ideally have more than one way to win. And I think potentially that could happen. Now, I think that scenario probably took a hit when we learned that Elon was in fact not going to take a board seat, right? Because the way for him to really affect change at the, you know, in the C-suite and in terms of um, uh, CEO and sort of the broader direction of the company, it would be to have a board seat and then ideally to have a friend or two on the board to help them in that effort. And that would be one way they could ultimately get rid of the, get rid of Prague. Um, I think, you know, I don't think the CFO is very good. I think he's very overrated. Ned Siegel, um, I'd like to see him go. Um, 
There are a number of employees there that I think, I mean, they have 7,500 employees. I think the company could be run and we wouldn't notice any difference with a hundred people truly. So it's kind of remarkable. And uh, yeah, they don't have a lot of product offerings. They have pretty much two products that function well, the ability to tweet 140 characters and Twitter spaces, which is an incredible product, but you know, there's so many problems wrong with the platform, but why do you think it needs to go private for him to achieve what he wants to achieve? I don't think it does. You know, I, I think that he could, you know, wage a more public battle for sort of the direction of the company. He could become, you know, he could take his stake up to 14.9%. Uh, he's at 9.1 now. If he goes over 15, then that triggers the uh, poison pill, uh, which he would want to avoid. Although I could paint a picture in which he may want to trigger that, ironically. Um, why would that happen? So basically for our listeners who don't understand, a poison pill is essentially something that triggers a, a certain threshold that allow that dilutes shares so that it becomes futile for him to basically accumulate an, a controlling interest in the company, right? How could it be, you said ironically, he'd want to do that? Why would he want to do that? As far as I know, there's only been one instance where a poison pill has been issued by a board and a activist went in there and actually intentionally triggered the poison pill. In this scenario, you have to know Elon, you have to know what makes him tick. Obviously, he's unpredictable, but at the same time, he likes to kind of tell you what he's going to do and, and kind of drop hints and clues. Now, I, don't, I haven't seen any hint or clue around him triggering the poison pill, but one potential incentive for him to do that would be to get the stock way down again, basically. <laughs> so what he could do you know, Morgan Stanley is his banker. He could have Morgan Stanley write him a bespoke massive put option, right? At half the, you know, 2250, which is the 50% discount where the rights are struck that would allow current shareholders to buy more stock at that price, right? That's where those extra shares are coming from. That's the strike price of the poison pill. Uh, he could, that means that essentially the stock would have to go to that rationally, those shareholders would actually have an incentive, would be incented potentially to short the stock, to hedge their current long position, and they have a natural put at 2250, right? So Elon could, knowing that, have Morgan Stanley write him a bespoke put option, a massive one. The stock would implode when he triggers the poison pill all the way down to about 2250. He breaks even because his put is massively in the money now, right? And he then can come back and tender for the whole thing at, you know, at 30 billion. And now his overall cash outlay is actually less than the current one. So, uh, you know, this, this would be a bold, pretty, you know, and he would be, there would be um, accusations of market manipulation, you know, and, and if he's buying the put, then that would be an indication that he intentionally triggered the poison pill to manipulate the stock lower, to then buy it back, buy more lower. But my only point is that's a scenario that I think could potentially happen. It's not, I wouldn't put the probability at zero knowing Elon Musk. Um, so what, what I think, but, but what I think you should do, and this is a simpler scenario, what I think you should do is go quiet for like a week or two, uh, not really give an update, let the market squirm. Maybe the stock fades a bit. You know, maybe he could sell 1% of his stake. That would create a little more volume in the stock. That headline, that would have to be reported. It would be a red headline on Bloomberg. Uh, he then, you know, could potentially buy more stock up to 14.99% lower, thereby lowering his eventual cash outlay when he tenders for the whole company 
in the mid 60s, which is where I think the board would have to put it to a shareholder vote and likely that would get approved. So that's what I think he should do. It's not nearly as complicated as the uh, tr- intentional triggering of the poison pill and the, and the massive dilution, which would cause the stock to drop and he's hedged because he bought a put and then he can buy it back cheaper. So, you know, these are just things that are kind of, you know, going through my mind in terms of possible scenarios in terms of how this could all play out. The other thing that I think is really interesting and what I think the Twitter board should be doing now is they should be soliciting any competing over the top bids from all of the key players. So that would mean Amazon, Microsoft, Google. And the reason they need to be doing that now is because I think that this is the one moment in time where the antitrust regulators are going to maybe look the other way a little bit if it means that they could keep Twitter from falling into the hands of (laughs) Elon, right? Yeah. If someone they like buys the company. Could you paint a picture for us what would happen if he just kept the company public, but maybe did a shareholder vote where he got a controlling interest in the company to be able to make the changes that he wants to make, whether it's to the board, get more people on the board that he likes, get a CEO in there that he likes. How could he do this and keep the company public? Because then it gets rid of that argument that people have where they think that the stock price is worth more than 50 some odd dollars a share, whereas that like 70 bucks recently. I just think that'll be more of a grind. And I think that Elon wants to, I think that he sees a lot of real um, sort of dead weight at the company, a lot of excess. I think that he wants to go in there. He wants to get a you know look at everything, and then I think he wants to make significant cuts. And by going that route, wherein you know they retain their public status, it's going to be difficult for him to out the current management team without more alignment from the board. And with Jack, Jack won't be on the board, I, I believe, as of May. So. Jack, I think, was probably going to be on Elon's side, but he won't have that alignment anymore. I don't know who else on the board is really going to stand with him and help him. So it just makes it harder. And it's not to say that it can't be done, but I don't know that that's, I don't know that he's in it for that type of grinding battle that can last, you know, a a year plus. You know, I think that he sees an opportunity now to potentially gain control of this incredible asset that has so much potential. And he's taking a shot. And if he can do it now uh, without a ton of work and effort and stress, then he's going to do that. And if it turns into something bigger, more of a marathon, then I'm not sure that that's really what what he wants. Although I would welcome his involvement. Obviously, you know, I my fear as a as a bull as a as a, as a long is that for all his conviction and. Uh, you know, passion, he also can be a little bit fickle in terms of what he's into. And I wouldn't be shocked if he just decides to, you know, that this isn't worth it anymore. Right. And so you do have to kind of be hedged. So I do own, I do own some uh, out of the money puts too. I I just think that that's not really what he does. And he doesn't want to sign up for that type of marathon effort. You know, I think he'd have to try and get a board seat uh, you know, it, it would be it would be a process, and he's never done. I mean, I, I I just don't see a very clear path to that scenario happening. Just especially given that Jack won't be on the board anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. It's like a product that we love so much, and is such a big part of our lives, and how people consume information. And some of the best minds in the world are using it as a platform to you know author their thoughts. Yet we also criticize it so much for the flaws that it does have, and the you know, the issues that it's got with bots and limiting people's free speech and things like that. So um, 
it's definitely something that you know is interesting to watch. I'd love to get your thoughts on Netflix. Netflix is down, you know, over fifty percent in the last two days. You were short Netflix. Do you mind talking a little bit about your thesis around why you were short Netflix and how you see it playing out in the near term? Sure. Well, I've been I've been shorted. I gotta say, I covered before the print, so I didn't capture that big downdraft today. Um, full disclosure. Why why did you cap cover before the print? So the street was looking for seventeen point two million net sub additions for the year. I thought that was high. I didn't think they were gonna they were gonna hit that. And if you followed the stock, you know you you know that it tends to trade on subs more than any other metric. That said. Expectations for, were for only 2.5 million net ads in Q1 and 1 to 2 million net ads in Q2. In Q2, they've got Stranger Things, uh, the next season, which was on a one-year hiatus, coming back. They've got Ozark. They've got a number of other sort of marquee uh, tentpole shows that tend to drive subs and engagement and, and at least retention. And so I felt like given the low bar for Q1, only 2.5 million, coupled with the better content in Q2, I didn't think that, that they would miss like they did. you know. And uh, some of the data that I was looking at too, it didn't look that bad. It looked, actually, if you just looked at the data on, taken on face value, it looked like they were going to beat the quarter and guide better. Um, and you couple that with what I, you know, what I think is a decent content slate near term, I felt like it probably didn't make sense. And the stock was already down a bunch. So covered it like an idiot. And, uh, you know, missed out on a big move downward. It's interesting. You you seem to sound almost bullish on some of their content that they have coming out and some of their prospects near term, yet you were shorting it. Is uh, Was it because you just didn't see the growth happening that it typically was having in the past? So I think near term, right, they, they do have some marquee shows. So Stranger Things comes out the first installment of this season. It's a two-part season. So the first installment will come out in May. The next one will come out in July. Uh, they didn't do it last year. So there'll be a little bit of hype and build up and, and sort of pent up demand for that after the hiatus. So that that's kind of their biggest show. So that number one in and of itself, I think you need to be leery of if you're shorting here. And then also the final season of Ozark will probably do pretty well. They've got some others. Um, yeah, they've got a huge slate coming up of content. Yeah. They do. Um, and yeah. they, they used to see a direct correlation in user growth to original content. Do you think we're still seeing that correlation of the amount of spend that they're spending on content, original content and user growth? Or is that kind of just like separated? No, we're, we're not seeing that correlation like it used to. First of all, the US, it's, pretty, it's a pretty mature market. I, I don't think we're going to see a lot of growth in the US anytime soon. Uh, in fact, they lost, we know that they lost subs in the US and I wasn't expecting that for the quarter either. Yeah. Do you think it's the fact that they raised their, one, raised their prices and then two, started cracking down on password sharing and they, so they were expecting to see this big loss? Yeah. So if you look at the price raise, they, their ARPU or average revenue per user was $19.91 in the quarter. That is up 40% year on year right from March 2021 that is a huge increase in price so there's no doubt that had some impact on churn in the quarter but as they said themselves too right there's also more competition right we're seeing it i mean 4 years ago they had this market entirely to themselves right the streaming market ad free anytime anywhere on demand 
And they've been able to maintain a strong leadership position in the market. They created, invented the category. However, we have seen a host of smaller players arrive and they're all putting heavy resources behind their own content ramps. Um, they are spending a lot on marketing. You know, I did a analysis about a year and a half ago comparing the number of hours of exclusive original content that I could watch on Netflix versus what I could watch on Disney. The conclusion, and I'm going to get the get the math here wrong because I don't remember exactly, but the, I'll give you a, an idea. The conclusion was that it would take me something like five years, I think, to watch maybe 10 years. I forget, but it was either five or 10 years to watch it for two hours a day, every day, a piece of exclusive original content of Netflix, right? Every day. So I could, I wouldn't get through all the content on Netflix that's original and exclusive to them for an, an, at least five years. I think it might've been 10 years, but I forget. That same exercise, when I apply that to Disney, it would have taken like two and a half months to get through it all. Everything that they were launching Disney Plus with, right? So that right there, I think really speaks to the massive sort of uh, head start they had in terms of content and just how much they're spending on content, but also how intense and sort of resource intense that whole machine is for them, right? I mean, it really is. They're spending close to 20 billion a year on exclusive original content. And it's huge. And I think that what we have to now question here, given the shortfall in Q1 and the guidance, right, to lose 2 million in Q2, I think that we need to question what kind of return are they getting on that, right? And how efficient is that content spent? Are they doing too many sort of passion project shows, right? Where, you know, for example, they're giving... Oh, so what do you make of, uh, of you know, the, the reaction from Netflix? I mean, it seems like a knee-jerk reaction to sort of um, go back on what they said they'd never do and, and, and look at advertising and, um, you know, do, doing kind of like what Hulu does. Yeah, I mean, the advertising thing, I think, is really bearish. Because if you follow what Reed has said on advertising for the last decade, I mean, it's he's been emphatic. No, no chance, right? Part of their competitive advantage historically has been that they are the only medium that you know you can, for a price, get all these shows anytime, anywhere, on your time, totally ad-free, and you can binge it. If they go to advertising, you know, does that mean that they then have to have more serialized content like will it have to be at a specific time they'll drop a show and then and then that whole series will get availed over the course of a few months rather than all drop at once does it because advertising caters much more to that type right where it's like every saturday you know that the next show is going to be on and then then you pay for that ad slot so i think that the fact that he's had to pivot on this i think it's obviously defensive he wouldn't have this sort of religion change on advertising, obviously people would prefer to watch their shows ad-free if they can, and especially movies. And so I think that his sort of backpedaling on that is just indicative that they feel like they're hitting a wall in terms of the current model. Yeah, I think that you know he's trying to find a solution for the fact that they increase their price and maybe there's some people that are okay spending like or you know, five dollars as opposed to twenty dollars. So the cheaper version he'll add some advertising, I guess, before and after maybe movies or shows. Um, do you think that there's going to be any impact? So, so for example, one of the things that they want to do 
is clean up the fact that they there's a they say there's a hundred million users sharing passwords. So even if they you know maybe fix twenty percent of that and you know, fix that problem, uh, do you think that that would result in better user growth and better? That'll be, I don't think that's going to be an easy fix. You know, if if that were some low hanging fruit that they could address, uh, they would have done it already. You know, they've obviously been well aware of the fact that there's a lot of sharing. They've been asked about it in the past on prior calls. You know, I remember, I think two or three or four years ago, even, you know, them getting asked about that phenomenon and sort of flippantly dismissing it, right, as something that, yeah, sure, it happens, but we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah, I, I heard that they almost like liked right. it, whereas it was like a form of marketing for them. They're like, this is a benefit. We don't care. It's like marketing for right, us. Right, because they kind of think, right, well, if the college kid leeching off his parents, he's eventually going to become a, a grown up and then get his own account, right? And he'll get hooked on the content and then he'll want to have his own account. But, and that, you know, that makes sense. You know, I don't think they were wrong to to think that way. But I, I also think that it's going to be hard. I mean, what, once you condition people for free, to get something for free, they don't convert into a paying user that easily. You know, there's a reason why these people are, you know, these households or whatever are are going out of their way to take that awkward step of like kind of using someone else's account. You know, it's probably because they either don't value it enough to pay for it on their own, or they can't pay for it on their own, or a combo of the two. And that would suggest to me that the, you know, of the hundred million that are out there, you know, kind of leeching off other other accounts, you know, it may be more difficult to get that type of conversion off, off that base, or it may be more difficult to get the people that are, I mean, they could go the other route too, which is getting the, the account that's paying for the guys that are leeching or whatever, for lack of a better term, get them to pay more. But that's a tough sell too, right? And also, I don't think the market is going to give them a lot of credit for that either. So I think that what's going to happen is when they start implementing the, the change to try and drive that incremental adoption from the, from the free accounts, what's going to happen is the market, they'll, they'll be in, there will be a, some uptick in subs but, and or revenue, but the market will say, well, how can you parse out the password changes versus organic growth? And when we learn that you know, half the net ads were from a password tweaking, playing around with the password stuff, the market won't give them as much credit for that type of growth. So, you know, it's it's what you do in the later stage, you know, likewise with the ad speculation, likewise with their pivot into video games. You know, these are all things that are signs of a company that is maturing, you know, at least maturing relative to their current sort of business model. I think the market is obviously identifying that and uh, that's why we've got the stock reaction that we've had. What do you think about doing something like what Amazon did, where they went and bought MGM to increase their catalog and increase you know, the, the attention of people? So for example, like I feel like there's a lull in content for Netflix right now. There's nothing new or original that I haven't seen on there. Um, but if they went and acquired through mergers and acquisitions, maybe a property, do you think if you're Ted Sarandos or you're Reed Hastings, is there anyone out there that you would maybe go and acquire to try to increase some of your user growth? No, I mean, you could, you know, the only ones that would be, you know, the so-called free radicals, which is a term coined by, uh, by Malone. Um, what is there? There's AMCX, right? Which is the, you know, AMC networks and they've got, you know, their big claim to fame is uh, the um, walking dead, which is a show that's already pretty mature and, and actually 
going to be shuttering. I think the final season, it might be this season, there'll be some spinoffs, but they've already milked that content for everything it's worth, in my opinion. They don't have a lot of other exclusive originals or, or rights, for that matter, that matter. Uh, that would be a part of a meaningful library for them. And then there's Lionsgate too, which is another sort of studio that I think does have a pretty big library, but they could go and buy a studio, right? Like that, like one of the, like a Lionsgate or, but at the end of the day, they can also just go and license the content from them, which is what they've been doing. You know, I don't know that going out and buying a studio really brings a lot of synergy to what they're trying to do. I mean, you could argue that Paramount, right? Like one of the advantages that Paramount has is that they have assets all over the planet. So, you know, if you wanted to make a movie and have it set in South Africa, you know, they're, they've got capability there and they can do that. They've got, you know, infrastructure that would allow them to kind of quickly move on that. That's part of the advantage of owning a studio. But at this point, you know, I think Netflix, given their scale, they're going to have comparable sort of skill set. And, um, you know, while they may not have the, the physical sort of presence that that a paramount, you know, massive like college campus like studio has, they I don't think that they necessarily need that either. So I don't know that it really would make a lot of sense for them. And, uh, you know, unless they really want it, unless there's a real big library out there that they think, you know, that they think is valuable and that they want to keep out of the hands of a competitor. And I'm not sure who owns that library. I don't think we should expect to see that from them anytime soon. Is there a bull case at all to be made for Netflix in the next maybe two years that you would say? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the bull case is that not to get back to subs, but they just guided to 2 million loss, right, for Q2. Um, that seems punitive to me, you know, just at face value, right? I mean, I told you why I covered it to begin with, and it was because I felt like the one to two number for the quarter was probably low. I really think that 2 million loss is low, right? So there's a good chance they can beat that number. You know, if you look at the valuation, it's actually become, I wouldn't call it a value stock, but it is definitely a GARP stock, right, at this point, you know, growth at a reasonable price, trading for 19 times, 20 times earnings, cheapest it's ever been. They did beat on earnings in the quarter. They generated po- a significant amount of positive free cash flow. Um, I think that that will be more of the norm going forward. You know, it's not going to be as much of a top line driven momentum story, obviously, but if they can continue to grow earnings and, and uh, produce stable cash flow, then I think that there's something to be said for that, right? And you could see a transition of the investor base, but that's not always a bad thing either. And then, you know, I do think that there's opportunity for them to get back to basics and to kind of get back to focusing on what helped make them into the household name that they are, right? Which is, you know, focusing on sort of mass market, broadly appealing, thought provoking, but, you know, you know, kind of like water cooler type content that a lot of people that really, you know, people worldwide tend to like. And I think that, you know, they've kind of moved away from that the last couple of years, maybe out of, I think maybe they're just a little bit of complacency, right? Ted Sarandos, he he was the head content guy, and then he got promoted to be co-CEO with Reed. And ever since then, you know, I don't think that they've really made a quarter. So, you know, I think that uh, if they could get back to some of the basic blocking and tackling and focusing on what kind of helped build them into what they've become, that'll go a long way. And, um, you know, I think that eliminating some of the passion projects, trying to trying to keep any sort of political 
bent out of it, I think is always helpful. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter and I can tell you they were, have been widely mocked on Twitter. And, uh, so I think just kind of getting back to basics there would, would be go a long way for them. And, um, uh, I do think that they did a good job navigating the, you know, the way Sarandos navigated the Dave Chappelle kind of saga that went on there when they were, um, you know, trying to cancel Dave for his special that they did and they supported Dave and said, we're not going to do that. Um, I do think that that was good of Sarandos. I agree. And that was, that was good of Tim. And, uh, and I was kind of waiting, not knowing that that would be his ultimate, uh, response to that challenging situation. And he, I think he did a great job with that. And, uh, so I think that that also gives some confidence too, right? That they, you know, they're not going to let one extreme view sort of derail what they still think is, you know, funny or entertaining content, right? Like, let's be honest, 95% of us probably think Dave Chappelle is hilarious, right? So that should be the type of stuff you should put on there, right? And of course, not everyone's going to love everything. And there's always going to be a subset that may be offended or, you know, whatever. And you can't, you can't run your business to cater to that though. And I think that Ted did a good job acknowledging that reality and uh, sticking with Dave. So that to me is bullish, right? Because it says that, you know, he he gets it, right? He, he knows what they have to do. Uh, he's not going to let, you know, some special interests sort of dictate how he runs the business. And uh, so th- so I think that they there could be an, an, an opportunity for them to kind of get back to doing what, what they do well, but it's going to be hard. And I mean, and, you know, if you just do the math on the stock, right, like everyone had them growing subs. 15 million a year for the next three, four, five years. I mean, that all goes out the window now, right? It, it, when you report a negative quarter on subs, it just totally blows up anyone's DCF. Or what a lot of analysts will do is they'll they'll put, you know, they'll they'll say, okay, they've got 200 million subs now. They're adding, you know, 15 to 20 million a year. They'll get to 400 million in five years. You know, let's take that 400 million sub number, let's look at what the ARPU is going to be, what the revenue is going to be. They'll have 30, 40% margins. What does that spit out in terms of earnings? Okay. They'll earn 50 bucks a share, discount that back. Right. And then maybe the stock, yeah, you could argue the stock's worth 500, 600 bucks. Right. And that's what people were doing and you can't do that anymore. So it really kind of blows up (laughs) any kind of uh, model. And, uh, I do. I do know pers- personally. I've let my Netflix subscription expire many times, and I stopped paying for it. But then there's always that show that comes on, like the you suggested Stranger Things, or whether it's a big celebrity does a show. Ryan Gosling's got a movie coming out with Netflix very soon. It comes back, and then all of a sudden, I need to activate it again. So you know, there's a chance that this huge loss that they had comes back, and it's cyclical. And you know, we, we see some people come back as soon as they start seeing more content come on that they need to reactivate their subscription and it's as easy as them just like literally reactivating their Yeah, account. I mean, look, they added 37 million subs in 2020. Uh, prior to that, they were adding about 28 million. That's a standard, you know, a significant standard deviation higher in terms of the rate of growth on the back of locking down, you know, half the western population, right? For a, for a big chunk of that period. So obviously they're going to have a significant uptick in adoption. And now what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of those guys that signed up, we're seeing some churn. And we're also seeing a slowdown on the gross addition side because of competition, because of the macro factors. And I think because they just haven't really done as good a job as they can on the content front. So you put it all together and uh, 
it makes sense that they've they've hit a little bit of a wall. I do think to your point that look, people are going to come back, right? I mean, that's that of course, you know, there will be more hit content coming from them eventually. It's inevitable. And they'll have another Squid Game. Remember Squid Game? That was a phenomenon not to, not so long ago. Um, they'll have another one of those, and it'll you know it'll it'll go viral. Yeah, as soon as something hits the zeitgeist, you know you're gonna you're not gonna be sitting there without a Netflix subscription. Yeah. You're gonna uh, just sign up again. My last question for you before I let you go. So thank you so much for your time. I how do you think that this affects the other streaming services when you look at Disney, which you said you're bullish on, or sorry bearish on? And you know HBO Max, Amazon. Uh, you know how does this maybe affect some of the other prices when you're seeing a, a downfall like this? Are people going to start shorting other stocks? Yeah, I mean, I think that so for Disney, they've put out a couple of years ago. They put out long-term guidance. I think uh, for F fiscal year 2024, which ends in September 2023, and in order to hit that guidance they're going to have to add something like 40 million Disney Plus subs per year um, over each of the next couple of years. That That's going to be hard. I, I think that, you know, obviously with Netflix hitting a wall already, right, here at 200 million worldwide, the notion that Disney, who obviously benefited from the same COVID lockdown dynamic that Netflix benefited from, right, you had significant pull forward in that, maybe even more so because Disney over indexes to, to kids. And I know as a parent that, you know, we were doing everything we could under the sun to try and keep sanity in our home. And that part of that meant, you know, getting them in front of Disney Plus, right? During some of this craziness at home, especially when kids weren't at school and everything. So I think that they had probably potentially even more pull forward and demand in the adoption curve than Netflix did. And so the notion that they can do 40 million subs each of the next couple of years uh, in net additions while Netflix is telling us they're hitting a wall, I think there's no chance. So it's bearish, right? It's obviously a bearish read. Now, the flip side for Disney is that they've got a parks business that's doing pretty well. And, um, you know, you could make an argument that parks is worth 80% of the current market cap today so that you're essentially getting linear, their linear media business and you're getting Disney Plus and all their streaming assets for, you know, pennies on the dollar. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, um, I actually covered some of my short today in Disney. Um, it was my biggest short and I covered, uh, about a fifth of it today on uh, on the on the downdraft in in sympathy with Netflix, uh, but I don't think that the read here is bullish for Disney Plus. We're talking about their streaming business, not at all. And likewise for the competitors. I mean, you know, all of the competitors were getting a mark to market based on what Disney what Netflix is worth, right? And the market just told us that Netflix is worth thirty seven percent less than what we thought it was a day ago. So if we're going to use the same framework to value the other guys. Uh, then it obviously it's going to re-rate the whole group lower. And I think that there's also going to be some some real concern out there that the business model is just a lot tougher, right? We, we took this, this cable media business model that was like the greatest model in the world because you had this captive audience that had no real alternative. And if you had the right content, then they had to pay for the channel. Even if you didn't have the right content, if you had enough leverage because of your conglomerate status with the distributor, then even then the distributor still paid you even if no one was watching your network, right? So there was this incredible business model uh, that 
has been eviscerated by streaming, but streaming's tougher. It's a tougher game. There's a lot of churn. And that that is in and of itself, I think the biggest headache that these uh, new businesses are going to have. My view has always been that Netflix is kind of the hub and that the others are the spokes. So if you're, you take your average household, you know, there's probably going to be a hierarchy of streamers and Netflix is probably going to be in the top one or two of everyone's hierarchy. And then maybe it's HBO or Amazon Prime. But after that, right, the tail kind of gets long and you'll mix and match among the among the, the tail. Uh, but Netflix will probably be there for, through thick and thin, right? But obviously that's not necess- even true for them. We're seeing that, right? So it's a tough business streaming. So it, to me, it's, a bear- it's definitely bearish for the whole group. I do think the advantage Netflix has is that the other companies like Disney, for example, Disney's not going to go out and license content from, you know, another studio. They're going to be loyal. They're going to have to stay, you know, Disney plus type Disney content that they've created in house organically where Netflix can kind of be, you know, third party and go and, you know, get their own content that they create and then go and get any other ones, any else's content that, you know, may exist or be popular, get archival footage movies from, you know, the eighties and nineties and put that on their platform where, HBO Max, if you go to HBO Max, it's mostly stuff that Warner Brothers has created um, or HBO's created kind of in-house over the years. Um, not so much a lot of stuff that has just been like archival catalogs from other companies. Yeah. And I mean, that gives them a broader sort of well to draw from potentially. And I think that that's always been, to your point, one of the the risks for Disney and uh, just structurally speaking, right? They've got the brand, obviously Hulu is the you know, it was kind of supposed to be the more adult brand. And they bought, you know, when they acquired a lot of the Fox assets, one of the assets was FX, which has some more sort of adult leaning content uh, like American Horror Story or Fargo. But of course, Netflix actually has the rights to American Horror Story still. Um, in any event, a, uh, I think that that's been a little bit of an identity problem for Disney and a challenge, you know, in trying to navigate that and stay on brand while also having that broader audience appeal. Uh, and they'll they'll work through that, but it definitely I think at the out of the gate right there is some sort of ceiling on how big their overall streaming base can be. If if you consider especially that where all of their exclusive original spend is going, it's really going toward three brands. It's going to toward Marvel, uh, Star Wars, or Lucas, and then it's going toward Disney Pixar. So which is going to be kind of a what they've been doing and there is kind of rebooting old franchises. So I think that, you know, those brands are well loved and, and they have passionate fans, but they also, I think, definitely over index to a subset of the population, right? And it's probably not going to get as much um, attention from, you know, a lot of adults necessarily, um, you know, so I, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a gating factor for them for sure. Amazing, Alex. Thank you so much for your time. I always love hearing your insights onto these, some of these specific names and you're, you know, you're doing so well in some of your own predictions and it's always great to have you on. I can't wait to do it more often. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it and a uh, big fan of Prometheus and really enjoyed talking to you. So, so thanks again for, for uh, giving me the opportunity.